Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Michelle M. Jacob, an enrolled member of the Yakima Nation and professor of indigenous studies and director of the Sopsikwala Education Program in the Department of Education Studies at the University of Oregon. She also serves as affiliated faculty in the Department of Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies and affiliated faculty in the Environmental Studies Program. Jacob is author of Yakima Rising, Indigenous Cultural Revitalization, Activism and Healing, published in 2013, and Indian Pilgrims, Indigenous Journeys of Activism and Healing with St. Kateri Dekakwita, published in 2016. She co-edited with Stephanie Runninghawk Johnson on Indian Ground, a return to indigenous knowledge, generating hope, leadership, and sovereignty through education in the Northwest, published in 2019. Her latest books are The Auntie Way, Stories Celebrating Kindness, Fierceness, and Creativity, and Huckleberries and Coyotes, Lessons from Our More Than Human Relations, both published in 2020. Jacob's research interests include indigenous methodologies, spirituality, health, education, indigenous feminisms, and decolonization. She has been awarded grant funding from the U.S. Department of Education, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Spencer Foundation, and the National Science Foundation. Thanks, Michelle, for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Tell us first a little bit about your background. Yes, and I'll do just a brief introduction so people can hear my beautiful indigenous language, Ijishkin. Education Studies. So hello everybody. My name is Michelle Jacob. I'm a member of the Yakima Nation. I'm very happy to be here. Um, so you asked me to say a little bit about my background. I would say that I was raised up to do the work that I am exactly doing. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that I'm very fortunate that my family and my tribal community have always really encouraged education for our people and have really seen Western education as a way that we could support our people's thriving, to use education as a tool to strengthen ourselves individually as well as to make a contribution to our collective to strengthen our tribal nations. And I'll tell you a little story about that. Um, when I was going through the public school system on my reservation, our tribal leaders would have a gathering for youth who were doing well in school, either attendance-wise or grade-wise or um, you know, being just kind of upstanding students you know, strengthening our classroom communities. And they would sponsor a field trip where we would go down to our tribe's cultural center and our tribal leaders would speak to us and remind us of this is important. And the people who came before you made sacrifices so that you could have these opportunities and you are the next leaders of our people. And so I was raised up hearing those important messages and having a lot of inspiring role models in my community. And so I try to carry that with me and do more and do better for the future generations. So you've been, you are a very prolific scholar, uh, but your most, your two most recent books, The Auntie Way and Huckleberries and Coyotes 
are somewhat of a departure from your scholarly work. So first of all, um, just tell me a little bit about why you wanted to write these books and then um, would you mind reading a story or two? Oh, I would love to. Yes, I have them right here. So here's the cover. Sorry, there's a little bit of a glare of the anti-way. And I wrote this book because in our communities, the anti-role is a sacred role, a privileged role. And we have so many examples of our aunties helping us, nurturing us, inspiring us, uh, aunties who are blood related as well as chosen. And I just didn't see or hear a lot of that recognition and respect for aunties. And so I wrote a book about it with uh, several short stories. And I wanted to make it an accessible text. And so the stories are, I think, you know, very readable, uh, relevant for kindergarten classroom, all the way up to doctoral seminars, I would say, um, because there's something interesting that happens in Western education in terms of the farther you go, kind of the more confusing sometimes the writing is. <laughs> and, you know, I believe Indigenous studies in particular, you know, academic work generally, but indigenous studies in particular should be accessible to our people. And so that was uh, part of the spirit of the book. And so because uh, we're talking about academic things today, I'll go ahead and read the story, Academic Aunties. And I think this will be uh, you know, a story that will ring true for a lot of people who are watching. There's a special group of women who know the secret passages, trap doors, and quicksand of the ivory tower. These women, sometimes elderly, sometimes young, sometimes in between, are good listeners, good observers. They are masterful at choosing their moments, knowing just when to draw a short dagger from the beaded holster at the back of their belt and thrust it forward to slay a dragon. I've seen it more than once. How can that short little blade do so much for so many? But these women are not looking for a fight. In general, they are happiest to visit quietly with a small group of people. They carry themselves in a way that shows you who they are, proud yet humble, kind but will hold you to high standards. These women are tough yet velvety soft. They are academic aunties. Being with them is like attending a calm and rejuvenating tea party. Their care and concern for you is evident in the warm scones they place on the table inside the cloth lined basket. Did you want jam with your scone? Strawberry or blackberry? Oh, she remembers. She has a jar of huckleberry jam she was saving just for this occasion. What wonderful nourishment in more ways than one. Academic aunties tell stories, softly chuckle at jokes, or if naughty jokes are shared, sometimes they howl with laughter, passers-by in the hallway peering in with quizzical looks on their faces. Academic aunties talk about work projects and their families. They tell stories about back home, share ideas with generosity, and always keep an eye towards helping connect you to what will help you to heal, to be your best you. Against all odds, these women exist in the halls of academia. 
a place that is typically hostile to everything academic aunties bring. Love, kindness, encouragement, patience, hope. So our aunties, when needed, keep these magical gifts tucked away. That's why they have such big purses and strong shoulders from carrying that big bag of auntie magic. I've had so many academic aunties. At every college I attended, I found at least one. These women who have very little to no reason to spend their time and energy help and hope on you, but in some blessed way, see a glint of potential amidst your wearing, flunking, lost my scholarship on academic probation self. And so they open their big bag of anti-magic. They know which form to fill out and which office to take it to and which office worker is the least passive aggressive. All of these things that are crucial to stop the bleeding and hemorrhaging of your academic and professional future from fading away. Academic aunties are partners in your dreams. They respect you enough to remind you in ways both implicit and explicit that in accepting auntie help, you become responsible for helping others in the future. You are expected to watch and learn about the anti-magic in their bags and to use what you learn to help others struggling with the same quicksand problems that you once fell into and avoid the trap doors that you once were stumbling over. I've never seen a job ad for an academic auntie, yet I cannot imagine living without them. Perhaps it is for the best that HR isn't classifying, reviewing, and ranking one's academic antiness, but maybe it's not, I don't know. All I know is that academic aunties are magical and fierce and kind and patient and creative and demanding, all in a good way. I dream of an academy filled with anti-magic. I see it now, the ivory tower in a snow globe with the sparkling flakes of academic anti-magic casting a beautiful spell on everyone and everything. I hope we all get to attend the University of Anti-Magic. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that great story. Um, since you dream of an academy filled with anti-magic, tell me a little bit about the Sopsikwala education program at U of O. Uh, I could imagine that is a program that begins to resemble your dream. Yes. Yeah, co-leading the Sepsikwafla program with my colleague, Dr. Leilani Sabzalian, and with our amazing program coordinator, Stephanie Tabibian. You know, it's the perfect opportunity to put into practice our theories that we write about as scholars in terms of indigenous feminism and decolonization. And we really try to you know, model what does that look like on the ground? Um, so how we interact with each other, you know, the leadership team for the program. Uh, in the program, we have a policy of family comes first. And so if there's a pressing need in any of our families or our communities, that's understood as the highest priority. And that's why we're a team. We all don't need to do everything or be everywhere. And how can we say that we're you know, all about indigenous self-determination if kind of the busy work of the institution takes a priority over the most pressing needs of our families and communities. So that's a way that we do that in the leadership team. And I'm very proud of that. 
Um, and I'm so fortunate I get to work with my dream team. <laughs> um, and then how we engage in leading the program. You know, our program is operated as a consortium with the nine federally recognized tribal nations in the state of Oregon. And so we meet quarterly at least with our tribal advisory council more often if there are other pressing matters. And all the important decisions, including admissions for our fully funded program for masters and teacher licensure students uh, that's made uh, collectively with our tribal advisory council that has uh, representatives appointed by the tribal councils of each of the nine tribal nations in Oregon. And so that's really something, you know, to model for the university, what does it look like for an academic program to work in partnership and to share power with tribal nations to really be of service to tribal nations. And so that's a sheer delight. And of course, you know, the students are amazing. We're so blessed to have such wonderful students who are service-minded, completely committed to nation building, uh, to strengthening their own communities. So all of our students, they have their education fully paid for as they engage in rigorous 12-month master's and teacher licensure uh, programs of study. But it's not free money. You know, Dr. Subzalian and I have a federal grant that pays for the costs as well as cost share by the University of Oregon, who's a, a great partner in this process. Um, but it's not free for the students. They do service payback by teaching in high proportion American Indian Alaska Native schools. And so, we're uh, really excited that this year we will pass the 100 alumni mark in uh, June. We will have 104 alumni who have graduated from our program and gone on to serve their communities. And we have a 98% graduation rate, which is outstanding for any program and particularly for a graduate level program serving indigenous students. Can you tell us a little bit about the curriculum? Yes, yeah, so uh, we partner with the existing licensure program, the mainstream licensure programs, uh, UO Teach and NSPED. And all of our students do the regular uh, program of study, which is, of course, aligned to the state standards for licensure in each subject area, as well as taking on a year long Indigenous education seminar in which they work with. Uh, Dr. Subzalian, myself, and Dr. Virginia Beaver to Khamshish, who's our distinguished elder educator with the Subsequatla program. And at 99 years young, we're so excited that Dr. Beaver chooses to work with us and with our students. And you know, she's such a role model for all of us. She attends every seminar, she guides us, engages in consultation when we're making decisions about what to focus on and what should we include in the curriculum. Uh, and so this term we decided to engage uh, to Khamshish's book. Uh, oh, I have it here, The Gift of Knowledge. Oh, my background's gonna um, make the, the image hard to see, but uh, students really, you know, what a, what a treat for our students, you know, to every seminar meeting, engage with Khamshish um, we have students practice indigenous language, writing, speaking, and listening each seminar. And it's really a native-centered space where we try to really imagine what's the ideal that we would want to see in our schools. And that's what 
we do in our seminars as a way to show here's how you can do it and to understand that we're working in systems that really have, you know, in education in the US, uh, they were really designed to eradicate our people and our cultures. And yet here we are, right? Uh, due to the strength and persistence of our ancestors, we're here, the love and the care of our elders to hold on to our most precious cultural teachings, you know, and pass them on to us. And now we're passing those on to the future generations. And so we give examples to our students of here's how you can engage Indigenous language in your classroom. And, you know, here's, here are ways that you can draw from elder wisdom and teaching in your classrooms. And so to really have that opportunity to model that for our students, it's such a privilege. So in all of your work, you stress the importance of women elder-centered Indigenous social change. And as you have just been saying about Dr. Beaver, tell us a bit about that role and why women elders are so important in that praxis. Mm, that's a great question. Could I read a story to like start my answer? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> okay, I had one picked up, but I'm gonna do a different one. All right, so this is from my book, Huckleberries and Coyotes. And this artwork, as I haven't mentioned, I'm so fortunate to collaborate with Crystal Buck, a Yakima artist who has illustrated both of these books that I'm reading from today. So this story is called I Love Weewenu. And Weewenu is our name for huckleberry and that's my virtual background or huckleberries, one of our sacred foods, a food that has sustained our people since time immemorial. You know, we wouldn't be here without we knew um, in our cultural teachings. So I'll just read this short story for you, then I'll engage a little bit more directly with your question. I love we knew. She's sweet and petite and just a bit tart, kind of like Auntie. I remember Auntie praying over us and offering a blessing before we went we knew picking at the lake up at the base of Patu, Mount Adams, in our gorgeous Cascade Mountains. Auntie was already an elder with gray hair neatly permed and set under a headscarf. But she was strong and determined and could thrive on that hill beside the lake, just like Weewenu. I remember Auntie taking her basket and climbing up that hill so high she was just a dot. Look at her, she's like a mountain goat. Dad said while puffing on his cigar, taking a short break from fishing. He stood and watched her climb farther up. And that, then, then dad turned and effortlessly threw another cast into the lake, his fishing reel spinning zzz with delight. Bobber almost instantly signaling another rainbow trout. Cool, cool. I had helped Auntie pick Weewenu in the easy to reach bushes lower down by the lake. It was hard to get comfortable crouching in place, picking just the right purple berries. No stems or leaves, please. We only want the berries. A tremendous effort of skill, but mostly patience. It seemed like forever before I was able to fill the bottom layer of my basket. This was just a few handfuls of ripe berries, a quantity I could easily eat in about 1.5 seconds. Auntie encouraged me though, and complimented me on the lack of leaves and stems in my basket. 
Those will be easy to clean and use later, she reminded me. We all knew the tedious task of cleaning berries from a sloppy picker, the slow work of finding and removing all the stem and leaf debris. How quickly we'd like to condemn such a picker as immoral, thoughtless, selfish, in a hurry, some of the most vicious insults we could think of. No, no, Auntie would intervene. You must think kind and good thoughts when you're handling our sacred foods. Wiunu is your sister. You're harming her if you say harsh things or hold bad feelings around her. Yes, Auntie, I'm sorry. We'd quickly get back on track, stepping into our better selves. Of course, most of the berries were easy to clean as they'd come from Auntie's huge berry basket she repeatedly filled gallons and gallons of berries. Her many decades of practice picking huckleberries made her a true expert. Yet she always had patience, encouragement, and kind words for beginners who struggled to fill even the smallest basket or bag. Auntie's lessons stay with us. Her spirit soars like the eagle gliding near the hills where she used to pick Weavenu. Every time I taste Weavenu, I remember her. Sweet, petite, and just a bit tart. I love my auntie, and I love Weavenu. <laughs> so, um, to get back to your question about the importance of women elders guiding us in our vision and our work for, for change, I think that it's so important to honor our culture bearers. And when we think about like our rich history of gathering, you know, as the basis for our economy, for our nutrition, for our sustenance, you know, that is the, the realm of women and women elders as experts in really knowing the land and our sacred plant foods um, that traditionally made up uh, the majority of our, our diets. And so there are a lot of reasons why women have important wisdom and insights and are such strong role models for us. And in my work, in my first book that you had mentioned, Yakima Rising, I write, you know, directly and at length about the importance of women-centered activism, especially women-elder-centered activism. And just to name one lesson in particular that I think is helpful, well, we'll say, we'll say two because they're in the story I just read. Um, this notion of you matter, how you feel, how you conduct yourself matters. And in the story I just read, um, I talk about my auntie, and this is a teaching in our culture, that you have to be attentive to your mood, your thoughts, the way that you're conducting yourself and interacting with yourself. Because if you're mad or sad or angry or um, have conflict in any way, that energy is going to go into the food and you're going to make somebody sick. And so that teaching is so important to us, you know, spiritually. But also if you think about, you know, that timeless teaching in our culture, 
you know, that we've had our elders would say since time immemorial. And you think about it today, especially now in the pandemic where people are isolated, but even, you know, before this uh, unique time, you think about problems facing youth and elders, all people really, but we'll focus on youth, for example, um, about feeling like they don't matter, like, um, they're not seen or heard or respected, you know, that that should never happen, that no child should ever feel that way. And so that's um, one of the precious teachings that children pick up, you know, that they matter. It's so simple, but it's, it's so rich um, when they're able to spend time uh, with a woman elder in particular. And then the second... Uh, example that I wanted to talk about. And this one, I'm not sure if people who just heard the story would necessarily pick up on it. But when, um, when discipline, and this is something we talk to uh, talk about with our students, you know, is how do you discipline students? How do you discipline children? <laughs> and uh, in our traditional way, it's not a harshness. It's not a shameful thing. Um, and I write about this in Yakima Rising as well, that the elder that I um, talked about in the example in that book, they say, rather, why don't you do it this way? They don't say, stop doing that. What's the matter with you? <laughs> you know, something harsh like that. They say, rather, how about you do this? And in the story, uh, that I just shared, we see the same thing, you know, even though Auntie says, no, no, you know, it's not a harsh um, uh, kind of combative way, but it says, rather, you know, conduct yourself this way, and here's why, right, respecting that the child or whoever you're interacting with, that they have the intelligence and the dignity to understand why they're being called to behave in a different way, you know, so that there's always an, a relationship of respect there. And so this, those are a couple of reasons why um, I focus on the, the wisdom and uh, the great teachings that women elders hold for us. So you've been telling us about the, the teachings and the wisdom of women elders. You've been telling us about the way in which uh, in the program at U of O, you're centering indigenous uh, educational methods. Um, I'd like you to talk a little bit to, uh, about the Oregon Legislature's Senate Bill 13, the Tribal History Shared History Law. It's a law that mandates the creation of K through 12 Native American curriculum for Oregon public schools and professional development for educators. Why is this an important law? Why is this a good thing that we have this law in Oregon? Yes. Uh, so Senate Bill 13 uh, has placed the state of Oregon uh, into a position of being one of the leaders in the nation for advancing Indigenous education. And you know, that's definitely something to celebrate. Decades-long work on behalf of tribal education leaders, tribal leaders, community members, families, students, you know, working long and hard for this tremendous victory. 
And it's important because all of what we now think of as the state of Oregon, that's all indigenous homeland. <laughs> and, you know, from an indigenous perspective, if you don't know where you are, you're lost. And too many people in the state of Oregon don't understand that they're on indigenous homeland. They don't know the history of the land. They don't have a respectful relationship with the first peoples of this land. And so the Senate Bill 13, Tribal History, Shared History, is a great example of education helping to correct some of those um, atrocities, right? And it's also a great example of how Indigenous education, yes, it benefits Indigenous peoples, right? Finally makes us visible, finally helps to, you know, share our histories in a, a more impactful way. But it benefits everyone, right? Because it opens up greater possibilities for non-Indigenous peoples to understand who they are and where they are, right? And so that's a great gift that tribal nations have given to all people in Oregon through the SB 13 efforts in the development of the curriculum, Tribal History Shared History, which was developed under the leadership of the nine federally recognized tribes in the state of Oregon. Do you know if there are other efforts in other states that are similar? Oh, yes, yes. So in Washington state, uh, and this happened several years before uh, the fairly recent action in Oregon, uh, the Since Time Immemorial legislation and curriculum in Montana, there's Indian education for all. Oh gosh, there's several. Um, see, I have a book nearby. I can check resources for you. <laughs> or maybe I'll just refer everybody <laughs> to this is the book that you mentioned on Indian ground that I was fortunate to co-edit with uh, Dr. Stephanie Running Hawk Johnson, an alum of our subsequent lab program, and now faculty at Washington State University. Um, but on Indian ground, it's an edited book, meaning um, there are many different authors who wrote chapters in the book. Um, and one of the chapters talks about, you know, the SB 13 like work uh, across the, the US. But within On Indian Ground, there's a tremendous range of scholars, as well as uh, indigenous community members who are, are writing and speaking in the book. And so it's a great resource uh, focusing on the Northwest. It's a part of a series where there's going to be volumes on all the regions in the United States, isn't that right? That's right, yes. And so the series editor, editors, uh, Dr. Julie Prophet and Dr. Linda Sue Warner, um, they, uh, you approached me, asked me if would I be interested in editing the On Indian Ground Northwest volume. And uh, at the time, uh, Stephanie Runninghog Johnson was a doctoral student in our Department of Education Studies. And so I uh, you know, asked her if she would be willing to work on it with me and she agreed. And so I'm delighted. And our volume is the second published in the series. Uh, the first one is uh, focusing on California and then the Northwest volume came out. 
Michelle, I want to thank you. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you and to hear from you. Um, we really value what, all the work that you're doing. It's such an exciting array of things. You're writing, uh, it's so exciting and inspiring. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you today. Oh, thank you so much, Paul. I've been speaking with Michelle M. Jacob, an enrolled member of the Yakima Nation and Professor of Indigenous Studies and Director of the Sapsikwa uh, Teacher Education Program in the Department of Education Studies at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.